Halo Weekly Podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. This week we are moving into the 2017 list of cases, and in fact we're entering it with a bang as we look at the first three cases before the Supreme Court of this year, which were all very much related, and ask the important question as to what happens when the UK government does something potentially wrong or tortious overseas. Although each of these cases are equally important, we are going to try and cover them all in this one episode because of the related subject matter. The first case of the year, 2017 UKSC 1, was Ramatullah No. 2 and Ministry of Defence, and examines the concept of a Crown Act of State. This came up because of the actions of UK and US military forces against a range of individuals during the wars in Afghanistan and in Iraq. The government argued that this idea of a Crown Act of State could not only act as a defence to claims in tort, brought in such circumstances, but also that such actions would be non-justiciable, i.e. couldn't even be heard in front of English courts where the acts of the government comprised high policy. The respondents, on the other hand, did accept that there was such a doctrine of Crown Act of State, as retained by Section 2.1 of the Crown Proceedings Act 1947, but argued this is a rule that should only be interpreted very narrowly. In the end, it was the government that came out on top in this case. There is a clear historical context for a Crown Act of State that dates back to the 18th century, and even today such a principle can be considered compatible with the European Convention on Human Rights, because it is a rule of substantive law, and therefore doesn't conflict with Article 7. It's not especially clear from the judgments whether the doctrine needs to be one of both non-justiciability and a defence, but it makes very little difference in the present case as it has essentially the same effect. What the judgment does give us though is a clear definition as to what a Crown Act of State actually is. According to the Supreme Court, it is an exercise of sovereign power that is governmental in nature, committed abroad and with the authority of the Crown. It is true that a Crown Act of State should not breach international law, such as the Geneva Convention or involve torture, but in cases such as this one brought by Ramatullah, where the actions taken were part of a carefully constructed foreign policy against suspected insurgents, then the government will not be held liable. Moving on and in the second case, the Supreme Court had the opportunity to examine Article 5 of the European Convention on Human Rights, the right to liberty, in the context of allegations of unlawful detentions during the Afghanistan and Iraq wars. This case is called Abd Ali Hamid Al-Wahid and Ministry of Defence and the citation is 2017 UKSC 2. The relationship between British law, European human rights law and international law is very complicated and gave the court a lot to work through. For example, it would normally be illegal to detain someone for a period of longer than 96 hours, but the Supreme Court held in this case that the British forces could do this by authority of two UN Security Council resolutions. This could be resolved with Article 5 as this relates to peacetime conditions and furthermore the exceptions to the article form a non-exhaustive list. 
Nevertheless, there still has to be some sort of protection from completely arbitrary detention, and so this allowed for a closer examination of a period of so-called interrogation of one of the appellants, Sirdar Mohammed, that lasted for nearly a month after the original 96 hours had expired. Here, in these circumstances, the Supreme Court found there to be no legal authority for the interrogation under the Convention or even the relevant UN Security Council resolution. This means that Sirdar Mohammed's case can proceed to trial to examine both the intent of the interrogation as well as the period afterwards where he was held pending transfer to the Afghan authorities. This future case will look at whether the detention accorded with fair procedure under the Geneva Convention, and indeed it is likely that Sirdar Mohammed can expect a positive outcome, given that a majority of the court held that the procedure lacked any independence or participation of the detainee. The final case we are going to look at, Bell, Hadge and Straw, 2017 UKSC 3, is particularly interesting because it involves an action against the former Foreign Secretary, Jack Straw. Unlike the other cases that centred around Iraq and Afghanistan, this one mainly deals with Libya back in 2004, when it was still under the control of the dictator, Muammar Gaddafi. At this time, before the Arab Spring, dissidents such as Belhaj were regarded as terrorists, and it is claimed that the UK intelligence services, quote, arranged, assisted, and encouraged the rendition of Belhaj and his wife while they were trying to escape in East Asia. The government in this case relied on the concepts of state immunity and foreign act of state, but the Supreme Court dismissed these arguments unanimously. Firstly, state immunity is the idea that a foreign sovereign state cannot be sued in the English courts, and the argument in this instance was that Belhaj's case required an examination of the actions of foreign powers, in particular the US forces and the Thai authorities. However, the Supreme Court in rejecting this argument noted that such foreign powers will not be legally affected by the case. Meanwhile, the Foreign Act of State doctrine is a relatively similar notion and states that the English courts will not judge the sovereign acts of foreign states. The Supreme Court went into some detail about this doctrine and how it operates, but once again came to the conclusion that the rule does not apply here in relation to Belhaj. Now he is able to proceed with his case against Jack Straw, and it will be interesting to see how he gets on, and furthermore the extent to which it shines a light on some of the more shadier actions of the British Secret Service. So what exactly can we take from these three cases? What conclusions are we able to draw? The main headline for most media outlets was the final Belhaj case, and this was certainly a positive result for our democracy as a whole, as it retains judicial oversight of the executive, thereby maintaining the separation of powers. This doesn't necessarily mean Belhaj will be successful in his case, but the fact that this case can be heard at all in the English legal system is the sort of openness that we should expect from our judicial process. Meanwhile, in the other two cases, the government did enjoy some success, but this is to be expected in the balancing of rights and powers. On the one hand, it is clearly important that individual rights are protected, but this cannot be to the exclusion of allowing the armed forces to do their jobs. 
the lives of British soldiers also have to be protected, and part of this means allowing them to carry out actions on the ground in a legal but direct fashion. Well, thank you very much once again for tuning in and listening to this episode. I'm in fact recording this in the evening of the 23rd of January 2017, and tomorrow morning is very exciting because it will be the announcement of the result in the famous Brexit case regarding Article 50 of the Treaty on the Functioning of the European Union. I'm hoping to do a special episode tomorrow evening and get that out to you guys just to give some initial thoughts and reactions and try and sum up what the court actually concluded, as well as examining what the outcome means for the government. As well as doing that tomorrow, we'll be back at the same time next week with another look at a major Supreme Court case. If you do get a chance, remember to leave a rating and a review on iTunes. That really helps me out and supports the podcast. But until tomorrow, it's goodbye for now. Bye.